Well, good morning again. Please turn with me, if you would, to Acts chapter 17. Yes, that. Me too. Arrange things here one moment. Our second scripture reading gave us a bit of the larger context, but what I would like to do is walk through the passage starting with verse 22, where Paul stands before the Areopagus with one central point in mind here. God will judge all people through Jesus Christ, whom he has raised from the dead. It's very simple. It's an epic sermon, an epic speech that climaxes and crystallizes at this point. God will judge all people through Jesus Christ, whom he has raised from the dead. And therefore, it's a particularly appropriate text for an Easter Sunday. And so, starting in verse 22, we find Paul standing in the midst of the Areopagus. But we have to back up to see exactly how he got there. So, very briefly, if you look back at the last section there, Paul is there in Athens. His spirit's provoked within him because he saw that there were so many idols. He's reasoning with people in the synagogue. He's reasoning with people in the marketplace. And in verse 18, we read that some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler say? Which is not a very flattering description. But nevertheless, uh, other folks even said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities. Plural. Plural. He seems to be a teacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And some scholars look at that and say, what they under, the word resurrection in Greek is anastasis. So it may be, in, lack, uh, in the absence of further clarification, they thought he was preaching this one guy, Jesus, and then the goddess Anastasia, who was the goddess of resurrection. So he was preaching his own set of divinities, perhaps. This, this is something new. This is interesting, and this is an intellectual hotbed. We have to get this guy to the Areopagus. We have to get this guy to the Areopagus. Famously, Mars Hill in the King James translation of the Bible, what is the Areopagus? Well, it could refer actually to two things, just like Wall Street. Wall Street could refer to a street in New York City. It could also refer to the stock exchange. Similarly, the Areopagus could refer to a particular hill upon which a, a, a multitude of ideas and lectures and philosophies were exchanged and talks were given about a variety of things. Or it could refer to a particular council that happened to meet on that hill, and they met there for so long that they just took the name of the hill, the Areopagus. And at the time of Paul, the Areopagus actually didn't meet anymore on the Areopagus. They met down on probably the northwest corner of the marketplace, the Agora. And so when they come to the text, the, there's so much ink spilled. Was he... Uh, and the ESV takes a, they totally punt on the translation here. So you don't, so they don't show their hand at all. But was he standing but on the hill that is the Areopagus? Was he standing before a particular council that was the Areopagus? I don't know. 
Okay, and it's not clear that it makes a huge difference. Even if he was before a particular council, it was very informal. You'll notice there's no charges. He walks away. It wasn't like he was being tried. But here's what we do know. Here's what we do know. What we know for certain is that he was about to step up and proclaim the Christian worldview in the richest intellectual climate in the world. And in this particular location, in this particular context, this Areopagus, whichever one it was, frankly, represented the height of hearing and weighing such ideas. This is like the, ult- this is the ultimate TED Talk. This is the ultimate place where you would go for your idea. This is the ultimate place to lecture on your philosophy. This, th- this is an absolutely epic moment in Christian history. The perfect man here, not morally perfect, the perfect candidate at the most rigorous place comes together with this opportunity and finally the Apostle Paul steps up in the Areopagus. It's hard to overstate how momentous this moment is. In fact, listen to what one scholar says here. He says, in the following narrative, meaning 18 and 19, chapter 18 and 19 after this, In the following narrative, Paul works among Gentiles for 18 months in Corinth and for nearly three years in Ephesus, but no example of his preaching is given. The reason, quite simply, is that it has already been given in Athens, the very center of Gentile culture and intellect. And so what does the apostle to the Gentiles say in this moment on this stage? Let's see. Let's see what he says. He starts off with an element of Greek rhetoric, and he's gonna, you're going to notice throughout this sermon, this speech, that he is going to meet these people on their own terms in a way that is going to make a lot of people in church culture today very uncomfortable. But that is what he does. The captatio benevolentia. This is an element of Greek rhetoric where you would start by trying to gain the goodwill of your audience. You would try to give a compliment. You would try to establish some common ground. And that's what he does. He says, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious, which is a phrase that is ambiguous. It could mean empty religiosity and religious activity, or it could mean very devout religion. He knows that it's ambiguous. And he knows that he's not okay with the version of religion that they are doing, but he starts here. He says, you know what, y'all take religion very seriously, I can tell. You are serious about getting after the truth. You are serious about religion. In fact, you are so serious, listen to this, as I passed along, I noticed in verse 23, there were a bunch of objects, a bunch of idols. You are so religious and so scrupulous here that I found an, uh, an altar And I was looking at its inscription because it looked kind of funny. And it said, to the unknown God. Y'all are taking such care not to offend the... You know what? If you forgot a God, you have an altar for him. The unknown God. If he ever comes down and says, y'all forgot my altar, you're like, no. We totally didn't. Right here. We had one for you in reserve. The unknown God. That is religiosity. And so Paul is saying, I am glad that you take these things seriously. And then if you just continue to read, look at what Paul does. He frames everything he's about to do in terms of clarifying 
clarifying something that they at one level already worship or know, which is a very interesting way to do it. He says, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. This I proclaim to you. I'm going to give you the real account of the God you don't know. I'm going to give you the true account of the God that you do not know. And he does so by telling us five natures, broken it down into five natures. The first, the the nature of God's self-sufficiency. The God, verse 24, who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. God doesn't need a little house. He doesn't need people helping him. In fact, no one could help him. If someone wanted to give God a break, it wouldn't even be possible because God is the sustaining force that would even be giving their heart rhythm while they tried to help God. He is totally self-sufficient. He doesn't need your temples. He doesn't need your hands. He doesn't need anything. He is the creator and he is the sustainer. That's how Paul starts off. He is the creator of everything in heaven and on earth, and he is the sustainer of everything. And therefore, he does not need anything. He is totally self-sufficient. That's the first nature that he gives. That's where he starts off. Second, the nature of God's sovereignty in creation, carrying on in verse 26, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Now, this is a fascinating little verse for a couple of different reasons. First, it is the reference to the historical Adam that somehow always gets omitted in the historical Adam discussions. Because Paul clarifies that there is one man from which the rest of mankind came from. And God says there's really kind of two purposes here. The first one is to live on the face of all the earth. He created them to live. But it, but also notice it says that God and his sovereignty, it says he's determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place. God has determined when dynasties rise and fall, Paul says. God has determined whether you live in this little piece of land in Mesopotamia or whether you live in this one. God has orchestrated the rise and fall of nations. And what he is saying is this. We, we talk about God revealing himself in nature and conscience, and, the, and we call that natural revelation. Natural revelation. The, the heavens proclaim the glory of God, for example. But what Paul is saying here is that God's sustaining of and his his orchestration, his control over dynasties and even geographic boundaries is part of natural revelation. People are supposed to see that and say, hey, this isn't all random. These patterns, these regularities, these can't be just by chance. There's something more. There's There's someone behind it And I need to seek that out, which takes us to 27. And verse 27 gives people who are too reformed, theological, nausea. Listen to what it says. It says, they're going to live on the earth. And then 
that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him. And some people are like, don't know what to do with that. It's so not reformed. What it is, is it's biblical. Because particularly in the context here, and particularly for the people uh, that, you know, that he's speaking to, it would be appropriate for him to point out natural, natural revelation and sketch its purpose. He even uses the optative mood in the Greek, which is that, why you get that perhaps. He doesn't exactly express confidence that people are going to do that. Perhaps. This is something that might happen. Yeah, the heavens declare the glory of the Lord too. Paul's not over there thinking that that in and of itself is going to be sufficient for people. But there is a de their declared intent in natural revelation to proclaim God so that everyone has some kind of understanding that there is a God. And right on the heels of that, he says, but you know what? You actually don't have to seek very far. He's actually not far from each one of us. This gives us the third nature. The nature of God's immaterial presence. I've talked about how God is creator. He is over everything. He sustains everything. And that people should seek Him. And He has left Himself with a testimony and a witness. Not just with the heavens, but with the rise and fall of nations. That people should seek. And yet, you actually don't have to seek very far. And then Paul cherry picks Two quotes directly out of Greek culture, not the Old Testament. Right out of their own culture and says, listen to your own people here. But he's rebranding how they use these phrases and how they understood them. For example, for in him we live and move and have our being. Most people would have said amen to that, but in the context of pantheism. Oh yes, God is in everything, and everything is God. God is kind of like a, a gas that is diffused somehow throughout creation, or, or, or God is in everything, and so obviously in Him we live and move and have our being. And either this is a quote from Epimenides of Crete, or it's just this triadic proverb that's been repeated so many times in Greek culture, it's not really clear which one it is. It's frankly, it's probably both. But the idea is, Paul is saying this, and listen to your own people. I mean, there's a little bit different backstory, but they're onto something. We've talked about God's transcendence, but what about his imminence, his presence? Yes, yes, y'all have heard, in him we live and move and how are being, see? Even your own folks know that. What about the second one? In him we live and move and how are being, as even some of your own poets have said. For we are indeed his offspring. This one is even more interesting. So he's trying to give a justification for are we all made by God, but he also is dipping back into that immaterial presence because this is a quote from a poem from Aratus. And I want you to, in the, the phenomena, which is where we get uh, the, the word appearances, a uh, phenomenon, I want you to listen to this line in its actual context, the poem that it occurs in. Listen to this. Listen to how he's taking this out and rebranding their words, meeting them where they are. Let us begin with Zeus, whom we mortals never leave unspoken. 
For every street, every marketplace is full of Zeus. Even the sea and the harbor are full of this deity. Everywhere, everyone is indebted to Zeus, for we are indeed his offspring. And Paul says, you know, that there is actually a real head honcho, but it's not Zeus. Let me proclaim to you what you worship as unknown. We are indeed his offspring. Listen to your own folks. They're on the right track, but with the wrong backstory, he's saying. And he using, he's using the, the elements of their own culture. He continues to build on this in verse 29 with a philosophical argument, not a theological argument. He says, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being, it sounds like something that someone says in philosophy class, the divine being, because that's what he's doing. That's what they would have been used to hearing. He is, he is okay with taking things on their terms to an extent. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. This is his argument. We're his offspring, then that means he made us. But metal and images can't make anything. Therefore, the divine being can't be metal or an image. That's his argument. We're his offspring. If we're his offspring, then he made us, but images and metal can't make anything, and therefore he can't be metal or images. Boom! Just perfect syllogism. Right out of philosophy 101. Fascinating little philosophical argument for God's nature here. Then he moves to the fourth nature. The nature of creaturely obligation before God. Starting in verse 30, he said, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. If you're wondering what the, the times of ignorance God overlooked, just time out. We'll come back to that in just one second because verse 31 is going to clarify that. I'm not, skipping, I'm not punting, I'm just pausing, okay? But the main clause, we, we see two verbs here. God commands. There's now something that happens, that temporal indicator, but now, contrast to those times that he overlooked, now he commands all people everywhere to repent. So this is not a suggestion. This is not a religious best practice swap. Okay? This is a command. He is commanding people to what? To repent, not to be confused with feeling bad feeling guilty, ugly crying, uh, anything to repent, to turn, metanoia, to turn away from sin, to actually turn away from sin. That is the command that he gives. Why? Because there is an impending judgment, he says. That's why. Because, verse 31, he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. So here's the picture, he says. There is coming a day. It's a fixed day now. It's determined. Already settled. 
where everyone, all people everywhere, the same amount of people who are commanded to repent, they are going to be righteously judged. Righteously judged. And not only that, they're going to be righteously judged by a particular man, an appointed man. Now, Jesus is not named here explicitly, which some people think, I just wish he would say it explicitly. Why would he not do that? Well, he's already there because he was preaching Jesus in the resurrection. In other words, like the intro to his TED Talk, like the banner over the stage was something like Jesus and the Anastasis. Okay? He says that this man has been appointed and he is going to judge the world in righteousness. And we we find out one more thing. The nature of God's assuring act. And of this, he has given assurance to all. So we've got all people everywhere are supposed to repent. We have all people everywhere who will be righteously judged. And he says again, given evidence to all people by what? By raising him from the dead. The assurance. The assurance that the world in fact will be judged in righteousness. And that this is not just rhetorical posturing at the Areopagus is an event that happened in history. Is an event that happened in history, Paul says. This is not empty talk. I'm not just up here giving the next idea. What I'm saying is actually going to happen, and it's going to happen because of something that already happened. That is a guarantor, and it is a publicly assuring act that these are not empty promises, and this is not empty rhetoric. Because this appointed one, God raised from the dead. And now that gives us a little bit of perspective to go back to verse 30. So what is it that the time of ignorance God overlooked? He overlooked what? Overlooked what exactly? What does that mean? He gave people a pass for sin? Is that what that means? That's not it. He didn't hold anybody accountable? That's not it. No, he allowed people, particularly the nations, the Gentiles, Paul's audience, who had no sacrificial system, they had no special revelation, they were not given a law, he allowed them to just continue in their sin without intervening in any way. He did not come in and just destroy them just for their sinfulness and instantly condemn them, nor did he provide them a special revelation. Nor did he provide them their own law and their own Levitical priesthood and any of that. He just let them go. In fact, it seems to be in line with what Paul and Barnabas say in Acts 14 at Lystra, if you remember, people are so enamored by them, they're actually trying to make sacrifices, and they're like, oh no, well, how, how do we mess this up this bad? And they say, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In the past generations, he allowed the nations to walk in their own ways. He let them go, in other words. This mystery of Christ that has been hidden, but it's now revealed, and not just revealed to Israel, but revealed for the Gentiles, this changes the game now. Okay, Because Christ has been appointed to judge the world in in virtue of his life, his death, and, and resurrection, 
the time period in which God just lets the nations go and just lets sin go is over. Everyone is going to be judged in righteousness. Either you're going to be judged by being united with Christ and having his judgment reckoned to you, or you're going to be judged on the basis of your own life. Everyone gets judged and everyone gets judged righteously. And everyone gets judged on the basis of works. It's just whether it's yours or a, or a substitute's works. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 3.25. Very similar. It takes us to the heart of the gospel and reiterates what we see in the, the times of ignorance God overlooked peace. Paul in Romans 3, he's explaining that God put Christ forward as a propitiation, this atonement for sin. And what does he say? Why? What's the explanation? He says, this was to show God's righteousness... Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Again, not meaning that people weren't accountable. It means there hadn't been a reckoning. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be both the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So this actually gets us here to the heart of the gospel. How can we be righteously judged by this man? If God is, and maybe you haven't considered it this way, maybe you're visiting, maybe you're not identifying with Christ at all, but just think of it. If God is a just judge, do just judges let guilty people, do they declare them innocent or even righteous? No. But God is a just judge. He has to be just. That's what it's saying. But, but then we're in a problem because God also has to show mercy. He's got to show grace. That's part of this whole story. How do you put the two together? How can God be just and gracious and merciful? And the answer is Jesus. That's how. That's what solves the problem. That's what solves, solves the problem. Christ lives the perfect life. He dies the death that we were supposed to die. He is raised in vindication of his incredible claims of his divinity and is a down payment of uh, what will happen and, and even looking to the future for our resurrection. And uh, we are able to be united with Christ. And because he incurred the curse, because he was judged on a cross, that condemnation, that judgment is reckoned to us. We are united with Christ. We get credit for it, in other words. And so the only condemnation that's left is going to be for those who at that particular day do not are not united with Christ, and they will stand on the basis of their own works before God and see if they are good enough. Do they cut mustard? And the answer will be no. The answer will be no. There has been public, concrete revelation of God in history in virtue of the resurrection that should give all people assurance that God is going to do what he says he is going to do. And I want you to notice how Paul's argument culminates here as we move towards applying what is a fairly straightforward passage. It starts with just religion. Then it moves towards God, monotheism, then finally explicit Christianity. Right? And as you know from the workplace and your friend circles, that's where people get off the train. Jesus, the command to repent and follow him on his own terms. In fact, if you look down at verse 32, which I intentionally did not have read, it says, 
Now, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some started mocking. Some mocked. God will judge all people through Jesus Christ, whom he has raised from the dead. Christ and the resurrection changes everything about how people are supposed to relate to God and how they are even able to do so. And that is why, Acts 4, there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This Jesus, who you crucified, God raised from the dead. And so what do we do in light of this man? Well, it's actually simple. The application is not easy, but it is simple. Repent. There's a command here. Those are the easiest applications in the Bible. I'm sorry, the simplest applications. Not the easiest. Repent. It's a simple question if you're here today. Have you turned from your sin? Have you turned from your sin? And I don't mean again. Weeping, wailing, ugly crying, feeling guilty, feeling bad, promising to do better. None of that is repentance. Not by itself. Maybe those, those elements are often included in repentance. But none of those things are repentance. Turning. Turning from sin. Turning from a way that leads to death and pursuing a way that leads to so like we all stand condemned under the weight of our own sin, Christ Jesus has paid the penalty for that sin. Are we going to repent and have faith in Christ? Are we going to obey the commands of Christ and follow him on his own terms or not? And then the second question is, do you repent? So one question, have you experienced a foundational repentance where you have gone from death to life? And the second, do you live a lifestyle of repentance, though, before God and other people? Or is repentance for you kind of like a front door? My, you know, is your understanding of repentance, repentance is what got me out of the line going to hell and into the line going to heaven. And now repentance is for unbelievers who need to hear the gospel. It's like, wait, there's a, sto there's a story about repentance over and over and over in the Christian life. Do you live a life of Repentance. And if, if not, why not? Ask yourself that question. When's the last time you repented to God or, your, or, or somebody else? Is this something that happens once every 10 years? I mean, if you don't live a life of repentance, just I want to ask you to consider why is that? Before God and when necessary, before man. Have you actually turned from sin? And particularly, if you came to Christ and professed to be a Christian later in life, can you look back and see a very different trajectory? No, I repented and believed the gospel, and my life didn't change at all. To steal one pastor's illustration, when you get hit by a Mack truck, you look different. Okay? When you encounter the God of the universe, and you have repented, your life looks different. It doesn't look the same. And continuing to say that you have repented, I've turned away and I'm following Jesus and continue to live a lifestyle of unrepentant sin is just evidence that you have not, in fact, turned away. What about believing and speaking an explicitly Christian gospel? 
How much of the gospel that you believe, if you're here today, is American, and how much is it New Testament? How much of how you identify as a Christian in social settings or professional settings isn't recognizable as more than just belief in or love for, for God and being blessed? I'm fine with you starting there, just like Paul did here, but you cannot finish there and be a faithful witness. You cannot finish there. You must get to Jesus because that really nice Mormon and Jehovah's Witness and maybe that nice Muslim colleague of yours, whoever, they're all very nice and they all believe in God too. And you can love somebody and talk about God together and talk about how blessed you are and tell them that you'll pray for them and you can do all that and love someone right into hell and not even really identify explicitly as a Christian. Do we believe? Do we speak? Do we identify with an explicitly Christian gospel or are we content to just be kind of a theist, philosophical theist, someone who believes that God exists? I challenge you to consider that. Perhaps we all have room to improve there. And then finally, this unshakable hope, this assurance. We see right here that the resurrection is the assurance of our hope. If the resurrection didn't happen, everyone here is wasting their time. We're all indulging in a big fairy tale. And it's a sad one because I could think of a lot more fun to be having, frankly. I love having fun. If the resurrection didn't happen and I'm going to be worm food and there's no final consequences for life, I promise you I'll be living a different lifestyle. Guaranteed. Guaranteed. But if the resurrection happened, then there is an empty tomb somewhere in the Middle East that guarantees we don't have empty promises and that we don't have to live empty lives. If it did, then there is unshakable hope that death and sin was conquered once and it will be conquered again. And that is the kind of foundation. That's the surety that you can base a life on because brothers and sisters, just please hear me. There are a lot of disappointments and challenges in this life that are not, you are not guaranteed that, that those things will be overcome in this life by the gospel. The gospel does not guarantee that your struggling marriage will turn around. The gospel does not guarantee that your sickness will not lead to death. The gospel does not guarantee that you will not take your struggles with depression and anxiety to the grave. It does not guarantee any of those things in this life. There are hope for those things. Tremendous hope for transformation. But there is no divine promise that your brokenness and, 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 and sin and struggle and strife that if you are faithful enough, you're believing in God the right way, that all that will get turned around. Sometimes it just doesn't happen. But this is guaranteed. The abiding presence of God and the resurrection guarantees us that we will be judged and righteousness and new creation is coming. New creation is coming. And I, I don't want to discourage anyone. I Hope that you seek after redemption and transformation and the challenges and the brokenness and all. But if you put your hope there and you say, because God promises he would fill in the blank, you are going to be very, very disappointed in this life and perhaps angry at God. Sometimes broken relationships stay broken. This is a guarantee that one day everything will be made new because there's already been the first fruits of a resurrection and new creation. And that is hope that we can bank 
a life on. God will judge all people through Jesus Christ, whom he has raised from the dead. And the only question is how we will live in light of that truth. And so I, I want to send us out with hope, with conviction where necessary, and looking to the future, looking to an unshakable hope, even when there is so much darkness and there are so many things that weigh us down. Nothing will change the fact that Christ is risen and one day we too will, will rise. Let's pray. God. Thank you for Easter. Thank you for an empty tomb. Thank you for overcoming death, sin, and the grave so that one day we can declare and shout together that death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? God, we pray that you would help us to consider what lives lived up against the background of the resurrection look like, the kind of hope that it brings, the kind of expectations that we should set in life as a result. Give us that power. Give us that perspective, please. And Lord, where we need to repent, either for the first time because we've been playing church or Christian dress-up and culture, Lord, we come to you. We come to you and ask for repentance. We want to live lifestyles that are repentant. Work in our hearts. Please do things that we can't do because we've already tried to do them and they haven't worked. Help us, Lord. We ask in Jesus' name.